Premier Christian Newscast. In 2015, the UN agreed a BOLS development goal to eradicate severe poverty entirely by 2030. It was ambitious, but not crazy. Severe poverty had been more than halved globally in the preceding 20 years after all. Unfortunately, it's now clear we're not going to make it. In fact, over a century of steady and staggering progress on lifting people out of poverty has ground to a halt in the last few years and may even be going backwards. What's gone wrong? Why are we struggling to press forward with development in the world's poorest communities? And was eradicating poverty ever really on the cards? I'm Tim Wyatt, and this is the Premier Christian Newscast. This week, we're speaking to theologians and Christians working in aid and development to find out how the church is mobilising to try and push ahead in the battle to end poverty. But we'll also be pondering Jesus' famous words that the poor will always be with us. What exactly did he mean by that? And should believers be joining the UN in aiming for the total eradication of poverty? The 17th of October is marked worldwide as the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. But this year's events are occurring under the shadow not just failure to push forward with ending poverty, but its actual resurgence in many parts of the world. In 2015, the great and the good gathered at a UN summit to agree a set of 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Number one of these was simple end poverty in all its forms everywhere. More specifically, the UN set a target. By 2030, nobody should be living on less than $1.25 a day, the global benchmark for extreme poverty. This may sound impossibly ambitious, but in fact, most of the work had already been done. In 1820, as the Industrial Revolution was getting going, three quarters of the world lived below an equivalent poverty line. By the early 1990s, this had dwindled to about 35% of the population, and the rate of decline then sped up significantly. By 2015, when the SDGs were agreed, just 11% of people were surviving on $1.25 a day or less. Or to put it another way, the number of people living in extreme poverty in 1990 was more than 2 billion. By 2015, it was about 800 million, despite the global population increasing by over 2 billion in the same time period. So, having comfortably met its Millennium Development Goal of halving extreme poverty, the UN set itself the next goal of finishing the job and lifting everyone above that $1.25 a day line by 2030. But, sadly, it's not going to happen. The rapid falls in extreme poverty seen over the last 30 years were already slowing by 2015 and have now ground to a halt. In fact, we're going backwards. Since 2019, 70 million more people are living in extreme poverty. The UN currently forecasts there to be about 575 million people living in extreme poverty in 2030, which will amount to 7% of the world's population. A noticeable fall from the 11% in 2015 
but a long way off zero, nevertheless. Mark Preston from Compassion UK, a Christian development charity, said it was undeniable progress on ending poverty had slowed down. It's really impossible to look at the the picture for global poverty rates over the last, say, half a century or so and say that it's it's getting worse over the long term. But we've definitely seen, after the all the implications of COVID um, and the policy decisions and the, the, the struggles that almost every country in the world experiences as a result of COVID, there's definitely been some regression in our in our statistics and our experiences that actually lots of complicated factors have made the plight of the world's poorest people harder. And we hope that's a bump in the road and that the world is able to coordinate and effectively get back and intervene to ensure that poverty rates continue to decline. Because we've seen a really miraculous decline in extreme poverty rates over many decades. And so I think it's a bit too soon to hit the panic button, but I do think it's a good reminder that if we take our eye off the ball, you know, we could we could see this uh, become something more than a bump in the road and a change in the trend. And I think that would be tragic because an incredible amount of really good work has been done by you know, this compassion by agencies all over the world, uh, including governments, to really reduce extreme poverty rates. Compassion, who work around the world lifting people out of poverty through child sponsorship and development projects via local churches, recently conducted a survey which revealed that only 49% of British people still believed it was possible to one day eradicate poverty for good. Elizabeth Miendo, who leads Tear Fund's work in southern and eastern Africa, agreed that things had been getting worse for some time with anti-poverty efforts. In my experience, it's very difficult to actually measure the progress we have because when we fall on hard times, when disasters occur in different parts of the uh, globe, especially in the African uh, continent, it really sets us back. And those affected um, their, their, their livelihoods and, their, and all their um, homes and just themselves as individuals, they're always set back. And Secondly, the frequencies of disasters, especially climatic shocks, have been quite overwhelming in this continent in the recent past. And looking at even the impact and the magnitude and the frequency of which they are carrying out, which is actually a big challenge in the aim that we are all fighting towards in terms of eradicating poverty. So in that regard, it's very difficult to actually measure any progress looking at the external factors that most of us did not also factor in when we were setting up the sustainable development goals that have recently been, uh, we've recently been experiencing in our context, especially for us in Africa. Hmm. And could you explain some of those external factors? One of the things that's coming up a lot is the impact of the COVID pandemic. Do you think that's been a big stumbling block in, in anti-poverty work in recent years? Yes. Um, even before the COVID pandemic, there were huge challenges in tackling global poverty. And we at Tear Fund, we have been trying to do this. And in my experience, 
we've fallen through hard times when disasters occur, and this is a time to draw each and every one of us close to uh, together to meet our community's basic needs. We at TFN, we are doing that by ensuring we are working together with churches and local communities and partners in trying to restore the uh, creation that God called us to do in John 10, 10, when he said, I have come that we may have life and have it in full. So COVID is one of the key things that actually pushed us back. And there was a huge challenge in tackling global poverty before even COVID. In 2016, hunger rose from the first time in a decade, largely driven by impacts of conflict and climate crisis. And since then, the world has had only gone backwards in its efforts to end hunger and malnutrition rates. If we continue this way, by the end of the, this decade, we'll be talking about uh, 574 million people, nearly 77% of the world's population will be living below two dollars a day so that means the rate of poverty is just going to be something very big for us to be counted when you speak to those in the sector about what exactly has thrust a spoke into the wheel and blocked progress on eradicating poverty one thing comes up time after time covid noreen haitza a senior manager for compassion international working in uganda said it was impossible to underestimate the impact of the pandemic I think we can't underestimate, um, especially the impact of COVID-19, because I think before COVID-19, we were making good, steady progress. And then COVID-19 kind of um, like set us back, if I can use that expression. And so we can't, we can't rule it out and say that it got more difficult and more people were pushed into poverty because of COVID. One of the things that's come up a lot, you, you mentioned how the COVID pandemic has made things more difficult. I think that's it's come up in other people I've been interviewing, but it's, it's quite hard for us to understand. I think sometimes here in I'm in the UK about about because we think, well, that that was a few years ago, but that's all done now. That's behind us. Could you explain a little bit more about how what are the long term effects it's having on the people that Compassion are supporting and how is the pandemic kind of making it? potentially a little bit more difficult than it might have been before for for some of the programs to be so effective? I think some of the things that come um, off my head are using Uganda as an example, because that's what I'm most familiar with. When COVID-19 happened, we had a total lockdown or shutdown, you know, that meant schools were closed, a lot of businesses were closed, they actually allowed only people they called essential workers to be working. So we had people in the healthcare that were working uh, because you know we couldn't stop working for, for people like those. But a lot of people lost their jobs because of the different um, employment avenues being shut down. A lot of people lost businesses because we weren't allowed to be in public gatherings. So hotel businesses, you know, hotel and restaurant, 
people that had like tour companies were not working anymore because you know you don't have tourists in a time like that no one is traveling you know so even small business owners because there was a time when we we couldn't even drive around you know in my country so even people that were working in like local markets it was also hard for them because you have to walk to work and if you have produce then there are very few people that are coming to buy because not everyone has the money but also it takes you longer and they certain produce you just can't move around you know without the transport means yeah so so a lot of people lost businesses of course a lot of kids lost their parents to COVID because in, in my country, the people that are older were more affected by the impact of the disease, those of them that got sick. So a lot of kids lost their parents because schools were closed. A lot of kids also dropped out of school and never returned mm. because young girls got pregnant. So issues of teenage pregnancies, but also because many parents were struggling to survive some of the girls were also given out in marriage and so things like that are, are not something that happen in the two years when COVID is happening and after that it's done yes it is an issue of the past but I guess what I'm trying to say is it takes time for some of these things to to be completely um, dealt with for the issues to completely pass. In in some parts of my country, after COVID-19 has happened and just starting to recover, then there was famine. And people in that region are dealing with hunger. So it's been one big issue after another one. It, it can seem like the world moved on, <laughs> which I think the world did, but life did not move on for everyone. There are people mm. that um are still struggling. There are also young young people that had to work because they needed to fend for the families. If if you were living with grandparents that got sick, some of the people have stayed with the effects of COVID. You know, even when they healed from COVID nineteen, they had other challenges as a result of the impact that this has had on them. Preston said some poorer countries had seen their economies almost entirely crippled by the pandemic leading to huge problems to this day. Let me give you two country examples. One would be Sri Lanka and one would be Ghana. So it became apparent quite quickly as we were, as most of the world was accelerating out of the pandemic, that countries, and I mentioned those two just as examples, but there are plenty of others we could probably talk about. Those two countries experienced really severe high rates of inflation. And there's no denying that the, the COVID situation made it worse. So um, countries had to take on more debt as a result of COVID. And so COVID policy, and I'm, you know, nobody's making any judgment about the rights and wrongs of COVID policy. I'm not commenting on that at all. All I'm observing is that um, economic decisions that were made as a result of COVID we are now seeing the results of those and there's a very long tail to those economic decisions so to give you a really good example you know we've been struggling in the uk with inflation and we've all felt the pain of that we've seen our electricity and gas bills go up we've seen the cost of living 
in almost every respect go up and up and up. And that's with a, a rate of inflation that peaked last October at about 11%. Well, to give you an idea, in Ghana, um, I believe it was in May this year, the inflation rate peaked, let's hope it peaked, at 54%. So, and, and so Ghana's had to go to the IMF to secure an emergency loan, and that emergency loan will come with conditions that the Ghanaian government have to uh, follow as a condition of the loan, and that might create even more uh, social hardship in communities on the ground where Compassion and many other ministries and charities are working. And so um, we will be we will be working with communities who are addressing these post-COVID economic challenges for years to come. This isn't going to be done by the end of 2023. This will go on for 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 a long time to come. So yeah, I don't know if that is that's just one example of something that is has been very live in the last year or so. Hmm. And you mentioned as well the the war in Ukraine has really affected the world's food supply. Is that something that you expect, again, not to be a brief crisis, but, but to potentially drag on for years? Oh, that's, a, that's a difficult one to judge. And who knows what will happen um, in the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. Difficult to say. I think my understanding is that the Black Sea agreement, the agreement about grain leaving black by the Black Sea, is absolutely critical. So all the efforts to try and Im- improve the access of commodity um, shippers to stocks that are leaving the Ukraine and Russia and the Black Sea, that, that is really critical. As you, I think everybody knows now, Russia and the Ukraine are two of the world's um, most significant grain producers. And many of the countries we work in, particularly in Africa, actually, have very high reliance on uh, imported grain from Russia and Ukraine. So uh, I did some work about 18 months ago now, and it was really clear that some countries, Rwanda's one that comes to mind, obviously, but they had a very high percentage of their grain imports coming from Ukraine. It's bound to have an effect on global markets. But listen, global commodity prices, they fluctuate all over the place, and there's never, there's never, there's often not always an obvious explanation as to why they fluctuate. So it's a bit of a fool's errand to try and predict the future with commodity prices, but Mm. um, there's certainly enough volatility around for us to be concerned about the provision of commodities and food, uh, food resources uh, for the, certainly for the next year or two. And this global food crisis affects almost every aspect of anti-poverty work, not just the headline eradication target. Almost all development work was connected to the question of poverty at its heart. Families struggling in extreme poverty rely heavily on very basic foodstuffs and suffer when wheat is unavailable. Children who are hungry and malnourished cannot learn well at school, hitting educational attainment. And those who don't get good schooling find it hard to secure long-term, well-paid employment, further thrusting them into poverty. When examining the world's failure to accelerate towards the eradication of poverty, Miendo said it must be recognised how different the world was back in 2015 when the UN set its poverty targets compared to today. Is the context that we are operating in. A lot has changed and starting with the global pandemic. The pandemic reshaped the 99% of us became worse off because of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
which is something that we had not anticipated about or on when we were setting up the development goals. The pandemic reached us but impacted us unequally. For every life lost in high-income countries, four people in lower-income countries died. With some countries, people in living in poverty, nearly four times uh, more likely, the wealthiest, died from COVID-19. So low-income countries have been set back in their poverty reduction by eight to nine years, all but not, but not one of the 17 sustainable development goals due to the delivered, due to be delivered by the end of this um, decade are in jeopardy. And that is something we had not anticipated, the impact of the pandemic. Next is also the impact of the climatic crisis that we're experiencing globally. And I'll speak from experience from Africa. Initially, we did not experience the level of the droughts that we are seeing happening in the east and uh, the larger horn of Africa. And, this, and the frequency and the impact is actually longer and also larger than we had anticipated. So that's something that also the development goals had not also taken into consideration. Premier Christian Newscast. Premier Christian Newscast. Climate change is another huge and unignorable factor when it comes to untangling why poverty is proving so stubbornly resilient. Justin Thacker, a theologian who has studied global poverty, said the impact of temperature rises were felt disproportionately in the developing world, even though most of the carbon emissions were coming from richer countries. I mean, in one sense, the obvious one that I would mention at the moment is climate change. Climate change is having a huge impact on the global south, a disproportionate impact on the global south. And I'd throw it, it's the global north that caused the problem, but it's the global south that are suffering the consequences. I mean, that's transparently the case in terms of direct deaths from flooding and um, uh, wildfires and malnutrition and crop failures, but also in terms of loss of livelihoods from people whose businesses have, you know, have been destroyed through climate change. And yet it's the global north that has caused the problem. And it's, it, it's, it's interesting, that one, because there's been a lot of rhetoric in the UK recently about climate despair and kind of, you know, belief that, you know, we can't do anything about this. What I'm hearing from folks I know who live in the global south and particularly sub-Saharan Africa that's what I'm talking about here it's not even so much a climate despair but a climate um kind of real politique and and what they're saying is look we have this is friends of mine in sub-Saharan Africa we have no faith whatsoever that the west including you know China and the US in particular are going to take the steps that are necessary to tackle climate change. We just don't think they're going to do it. And if we therefore, if that's the case, then um, it's entirely rational for them to assume that climate change is going to remain a problem for another 50 to 100 years or whatever it is, and to base their activities and their economies on the assumption that we are not going to solve this problem. And, and it's talked about as a kind of climate despair in the global north. But I but I wonder, I'm thinking about my uh, Kenyan friends in particular, if it's just a kind of realism 
about how the West usually behaves. So I think what I'm getting at with all of that is that um, although the climate problem could be solved, I just suspect that it won't be. And my African friends are right to assume that that's the case. Miendo also rattled off a string of examples of how climate change was hampering sustainable development out of extreme poverty. From storms destroying the homes of vulnerable coastal communities every season, to crops no longer flourishing in arid and drought-ridden fields. In Mozambique, we have been very strongly uh, connected to, uh, in recent years, they've been experiencing very strong climatic shocks and the frequency of those climatic shocks in terms of uh, tropical storms and cyclones have been at a high frequency compared to previous years. Hence, the impact of these um, uh, tropical storms and cyclones have really deteriorated uh, people's lives by destroying their little livelihoods and also their homes. And TFN, together with its partners, one of the key things we've been doing is that we've helped communities realize that God's plan is uh, the plan that God has for them is not poverty. And we've helped them recognize even the resources that they have within themselves and communities such as communities in Cabo Delgado in Mozambique and Nampula, they themselves come together and with the little resources and technical expertise that TF and its partners provide for them they are able to rebuild their livelihoods by reconstructing stronger homes that are more stronger to uh, to the future tropical storms. And in this year's tropical storm, in the beginning of 2023, we saw the impact on those communities, households, uh, especially the homes that were built. They were not destroyed compared to the previous year in 2019 and 2020, because this time round, they had the knowledge, they had the skill, to build homes that are resilient to the tropical storms that they've been experiencing. They were also appreciative in terms of the knowledge they learned in terms of how to um, have climate met agriculture in terms of farming and early warning systems where they detect uh, when climate shocks are just about to happen. And these are just uh, examples that even in this year, they've been able to have better yields through the smart agriculture uh, trainings that they've gone through, and also through um, linking them with markets, they've been able to increase their livelihoods in terms of resources, taking their children to school, which brings happier and restored communities. So these are just small examples that I feel we are making a difference from one community to the other, and the communities are learning from each other. And through our church and community uh, transformation, which is actually a process where we take communities to understand that they themselves have the power and the capacity to actually improve on their livelihoods. That process helps them to even share that knowledge with their neighbors and their neighboring communities who are now adopting some of these skills and we are seeing this spreading over in their communities. And we pray and hope that this is one of the changes that will actually help us in dealing with poverty, especially in rural areas. But from another perspective, others suggest the problems around anti-poverty work are not really about war in Ukraine, a novel coronavirus, or spiralling carbon emissions. They're down to us. They're about sin and spirituality. Thacker said the climate crisis was fundamentally caused by sin. 
But this relates theologically you know, to the issue of sin. Why is there a climate problem? It's sin, fundamentally. It's because we in the global north are selfish. It's, I mean, that's what it comes down to. And, um, you know, that's the root of this issue. It, it's the selfishness of, uh, of how we live and how we behave. And that's mm. sin. I mean, that leads me on to another question I wanted to ask, which is, um, you know, obviously you'll be aware there's a big, there's a spectrum of views about in, within Christian theology about poverty, about whether we should see it fundamentally as a kind of structural systemic thing or whether it's actually about individual failings and mistakes and sins, um, either by, you know, those who are poor themselves or by other people upstream um, or whether actually, you know, singling out individuals and is, is a mistake because it's a more of a kind of, global holistic holistic thing where do you kind of land on that spectrum i mean i mean obviously it's it's all of the above and actually i think the scriptures make that clear that um sin and economics kind of intertwine with one another in in multiple ways i tend to put the emphasis on the systemic and the structural i think they are the fundamental causes of poverty but that's not to say that you can't find um uh, both individual cases where people have contributed to their own um, dire circumstances. But much more significantly, you can certainly find uh, many individuals who's contributed and who sustain and or turn a blind eye to the structural causes of inequality and poverty and don't do anything about it. So, uh, you know, I think um, fundamentally poverty is caused by uh, the selfishness and uh yeah the selfishness of uh the global north and that selfishness is reflected in the decisions and activities and behaviors of many 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 individuals mm. as well as perhaps to some extent the rest of us turning a blind eye and not doing enough about what is going on so it's individuals that sustain structural causes of poverty through our well sometimes through our intentional actions but also through our inactions another person who studied the intersection of faith and poverty but this time in the uk during the era of austerity is chris shanahan a methodist minister and theologian at the university of coventry he said his research had shown that even in a relatively wealthy country like britain poverty was on the up and mostly the result of deliberate government decisions to cut benefits and not address inequality do you think we here in the UK are making progress towards eliminating poverty. We as a society. We as a society. Let's go with that. Yeah. I think if we'd had this conversation maybe 15 years ago, I'd have said yes. I think by the time we got to the 2010 general election, we'd had at least a decade, probably more, of things like child poverty rates, for example, going down and down and down. What we've seen since 2010 is that indicators of different forms of poverty have been going in the wrong direction. An example might illustrate what I'm trying to say. In the year of the financial crash, so 2008-9, the Trussell Trust, the Christian NGO that's um, is the base for most UK food banks, um, handed out somewhere in the region of 25, possibly 30,000 three-day 
food packs or food parcels to, in one year. 2008 9, 25, 26,000 food parcels. 2023, 15 years later, wasn't 28,000, it was 3 million. So if that's just a single measure, something very significant has, has changed. Um, so that would be one indicator. I think another indicator would be that rates of child poverty have increased significantly, rates of homelessness and rough sleeping have increased significantly, um, rates of homelessness have increased significantly all over the last 10 or 12 years. Um, so I think without a doubt, I would argue, levels of poverty and perhaps as much to the point inequality have risen significantly. There are two kind of PSs to that, I would suppose, I would say. I think the first PS is that whilst during our life on the Redline research, which was a big research project that I led here at Coventry University for three years, we encountered intense, deep levels of poverty in the UK. It's fair to say that it's very difficult to compare levels of poverty in the UK with levels of poverty in other parts of the world. So I am not comparing the two. It's not comparing like with like. But it is the case that the UK has become a more unequal society over the last decade and that levels of poverty have increased significantly. I think the bigger question, not the bigger question, yeah, perhaps the most challenging question is why? And over the period we've had from 2010 to present day, we've had a conservative Liberal Democrat and then a conservative, successive conservative governments. Under George Osborne and David Cameron, as we know, there was the introduction of so-called austerity policies. And significantly, government ministers have again and again and again claimed that there was no connection between 25% cuts in welfare and austerity spending cuts and growing levels of poverty, that there was no connection between the universal rollout of universal credit and Trussell Trust Food Bank seeing 50% more people using them in areas where universal credit had been rolled out. There was no smoking gun, in inverted commas. There might not have been a smoking gun, but I, don't, I think it would take a very cynical person to look at levels of food bank use, for example, pre-austerity and post-austerity and see the massive spike and say, come on, is this, this is down to, to government policy, isn't it, to a large degree? I think the question facing the church is not, is that a bad thing, but twofold, I suppose, number one, two or threefold. Number one, what does our faith say into this? What are we as church called to be and to do in the face of this? And how does the church use its undeniable influence to respond to such growing levels of poverty? Neither of the theologians said that because they believed the roots of poverty lay in our human failings, therefore we should abandon efforts to reduce or eliminate it. But other Christians have. Why should the church concern itself with whether there are more or fewer poor people when its primary task is to save souls? And proponents of this view very often point to Jesus' now infamous words in three of the four Gospels, 
after his disciples object to him being anointed by extravagantly expensive perfume. The poor you will always have with you. But did Jesus really mean we should abandon attempts to eliminate poverty? Compassion International's Haitza had no time for this argument. But here is what I believe. One, because the, the poor will be among you does not mean we need to leave them poor because they need to be among us. I think Jesus also calls us to action to, I mean, he talks about if, if, if people don't work, they shouldn't eat, you know, somebody will reap from that, from their labor and, you know, things like that. And he also calls us to actually take care of the poor that are amongst us. So my call as a person is to take care of them, you know, is, is, is to make sure I am, and taking care of them does not just mean feed them for today. It also means empower them so they can feed themselves. You know, so that's still taking care of them. And I think that's still scriptural. And talking about what the Bible says, I, I completely believe that we can't eradicate poverty um, on our own. We don't have the power to be able to do that. But I think God does. And God works through people. So you want to be the vessel that God is using to eradicate the poverty. Miendo had a similar interpretation of the contested scripture. At TFI, we have a say that poverty is not God's plan, and we strongly believe that it's not God's plan. The poor will always be with you, that's what Jesus said. When understood in full context, Jesus' words are a reminder to his disciples to practice generosity. Poverty is not a permanent and cannot be addressed through, uh, it's not a permanent and cannot be addressed through sharing, uh, just in systems and social. We need to look at poverty as an invitation that draws us closer to those who have less and practice the hospitality and the generosity that Jesus was calling his disciples to practice. Remember also Jesus said, I have come so that you may have life and have it in full abundance. So in that way, in restoring his creation, we have to be part of that creation restoration by making sure that we are addressing what Jesus called us to do and being generous and hospitable to those who are actually in need. So generosity and distributing resources is just the imaging of what Jesus was calling us to do. So that's how I look at it. It's something that Jesus was calling us to do because it's something that will always help us in practicing what Jesus practiced while he was on earth. This argument was also endorsed by Shanahan, who said when the Gospels are read in context, it was impossible to believe Jesus supported a quietist, stoical or fatalistic approach to poverty. So we can take scripture seriously, but read the same words in different ways. An example would, I would give would be, I remember many, many years ago, I was a minister of a church on dogs, becomes known as Docklands. And then um, we were having a Bible study and long story short, we were looking, it was just before Christmas and we were looking at the Magnificat, so Mary's song. And Mary sings about God raising up the lowly and bringing down the mighty. One person in the room said, Jesus is talking in, in spiritual terms. We need to understand this in spiritual terms. Another person wouldn't, wouldn't have any of that. She said, that's nonsense. Jesus is saying that inequality is against the will of God and that God will change things. 
one very direct small p political reading one less direct more invert small c conservative reading person who wanted to spiritualize it was one of the bosses in canary wharf the person who thought that we really did take jesus's word seriously was a cleaner in canary wharf same verse same scripture very different readings so to the poor will always be with you i think there are two ways in which that can be read there is absolutely the kind of more pietistic quietist approach that is ultimately saying those questions of poverty and other forms of structural injustice and inequality we know they are there but ultimately our focus as people of faith is to prepare for the coming of jesus our process our purpose as people of faith is to make disciples of all nations so we we cannot be diverted into becoming just another social action movement and i'm exaggerating to make the point for me there's a danger two dangers there one such a kind of a quietist or stoical or fatalistic whatever word you want to choose approach seems to contradict jesus own model of ministry Jesus might have said those, Jesus clearly did say those words, but Jesus also, in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth in Luke 4, defined his own mission by drawing on the words of Isaiah as bringing good news to the poor and release to the captives. He also, in his parable in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats, talked about God's judgment in relation to the extent to which people fed the hungry, both the naked and welcomed the strangers. So, Maybe we need to read those words about the poor will always be with you in light of the other things that Jesus also said as well. One thing I would say there, and I think the second thing I would say about those words is an alternative way of reading those words. And it's a danger that you pull them out of their context. An alternative way of reading those words might be to say that, yes, poor will always be with you. I'm, I'm not going to be here for so long, but the poor will always be with you. Um, is that another way of talking about the structural, endemic, systemic nature of poverty? Poverty is a poverty needs to be something that churches need to engage with because it is endemic. It is built into the system. It's not going away anytime soon. So it's something we need to come um, to focus on. Um, I'm conscious of that. That whilst those words are often quoted, they can become a bit of a red herring. I think. Because I think if we look at the sweep of scripture, we look back at the Hebrew prophets that Jesus is fond of quoting. We look, we look at the book of Proverbs, we look at Isaiah, we look at Jesus' own ministry, we look at um, various stages of Christian history, we look at the emergence of liberation theology in Latin America, look at the work of the church in, in poor communities, rural, urban, across the world. I think we're in, da we're in danger of focusing on the wrong thing. Thacker argued that Jesus's words had to be read as a direct allusion to a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. I think very clearly Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, there's this section, uh, which, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it basically says, um, there need not be any poor people in the country or in the land. If only you will follow my commands, but you do not follow my commands, Therefore, there will always be poor people in the land. And I think that's what Jesus was alluding to. So he was stating that the poor will be 
the poor will always be with us in the same way that Deuteronomy said the poor will always be with us. But the reason Deuteronomy said that is because we don't follow the commands that God has given us, particularly commands around economic redistribution and addressing poverty and so on. So it, it's a statement of reality. There'll always be poverty, but it's because we're disobedient, because we're sinful. And that's why Deuteronomy continues. And obviously, Jesus echoes this in numerous places. But Deuteronomy continues. Therefore, because they'll always be poor. Therefore, be open handed and be generous. And it says lots of other things, but it says, therefore, we have a moral responsibility to address the poverty that will always be around us. And so I do think there will always uh, poverty will always exist. But my response to that is not remotely to say, therefore, we should do nothing about it. It's the precise opposite. It's to do what Deuteronomy and Jesus commanded, which is to say, because there will always be poverty, because we're sinful human beings, therefore, we as Christians must um, do what God has asked us to do, which is be open handed, be generous, uh, address those causes of poverty and inequality uh, that, are around, that are around us. In the survey Compassion ran, a significantly higher proportion of Christians than the general public, 59% versus 49%, believed that ending extreme poverty was possible. The charity held this as an encouragement to keep going, even though the global statistics might be going in the wrong direction and the UN's 2030 goal will almost certainly be missed. But generally, my I think my, my sense is, and from my 10 years at Compassion, I, I genuinely believe we we can continue to see extreme poverty rates decline um, as long as we don't take our eye off the ball. This is not the time to give up hope and optimism. Perhaps, and this is a very much a personal take, but perhaps some of this is a significant number of people are losing their faith somewhat in the ability of centralised planning to do things that sound very, very grand. We've just been through a huge global trauma effectively and you know some authorities dealt with that really well and some didn't generally speaking i think there possibly is an increased or heightened sense of cynicism or skepticism about centralized planning and so um from but from my work at, directly with children you know and i've had the privilege of visiting dozens and dozens of compassion projects in in many different countries in the last 10 years and I've seen the work of nearly 9,000 churches, not personally seen all those churches, but we work with nearly 9,000 churches. And every time I visit a church that works on the ground, I see it in action. I see, I see people, Christians, local faith communities, indigenous people serving the poorest in their own communities and literally helping people to be released from poverty who, who lived uh, close by. So for me, the secret source for compassion, no surprise, is the local church, actually. And so we've we've worked since 1952 with um, churches around the world. And um, that is that is what makes the difference. It is locally led. Really important, that locally led um, uh, community involvement. Uh, because it's not for somebody sat in an office in Hampshire like me to be telling people in Kampala or Kigali or, or El Salvador 
what the answer for poverty relief in their community is. I think the more we get, it's almost like we need to get smaller for the for the big problem to get smaller, i.e. we deal with this in a community by community level and we can provide a portfolio of interventions and opportunities that those local churches, if they deem to be appropriate, they can use those tools to try and bring some change to their community. But it really must be, and this is increasingly important, in, and I think generally the literature has agreed on this, that um, community-led is absolutely the way the way to go. His colleague Haitsa in Uganda echoed a plea for believers not to give up hope in eliminating poverty. She herself was sponsored through Compassion while growing up as one of eight children raised by a single mother. Compassion's anti-poverty programme had taken her from a daily struggle for food through school, university and now into a managerial role at Compassion itself, where she not only provided for her own extended family, but also earned enough to sponsor other poor children. I don't need to be convinced <laughs> about this working because I have myself, you know, as an example, but also a number of people that went to the program with me and those that I have seen go through the program in the time that I have worked with Compassion because I've served with Compassion for 10 years. Tackling poverty among children rippled out through their families and wider communities and brought in educational and health benefits too, she argued. In the face of this, any discouragement from global statistics had to be put aside. But we see that the issue is bigger than it was in the past. And that, of course, makes it um, a bit more difficult than it was, you know, like five years back. But that withstanding, I still believe that we are making steady progress. And if somebody is getting discouraged about that, I would encourage them because I see this all the time in the work that I do. When you do holistic child development with a church, you are not just dealing with poverty in isolation. When someone is released from poverty, you are you are taking care of so many other barriers in that person's life. So at the end of the day, you are not just eradicating poverty among the participants, but you're doing that within that community where that church is located. And so when, when I see things like that happen, then I have to put the discouragement aside because it is working, it is happening. So when you give someone hope, they are able to see beyond their current circumstance and they know that it's possible that the future can be brighter than it is. So, so when I look at things like that, there's no way I can be convinced that this is actually not working. And, and when you eradicate poverty, the interesting thing is that it also trickles down into the other development goals because you're thinking about zero hunger, for example. Goal number two, when, when, when participants come to the project, usually it's on Saturdays because that's when most of them are not going to school. In some parts of the world, children study half day. So such kids would go to school up to like midday and then they would go to the project, the other part of the day. When they come to the project, they are fed, you know, we make sure that they are having a balanced diet. I still believe that it's not time for us to give up 
because working through the church, I have seen the evidence it works. But would shifting our gaze from global setbacks to grassroots successes actually help? Shanahan said in doing so there was a danger in losing sight of the structural sins at the top of society which perpetuated local poverty. That's the big question. Not are churches engaged in responding to poverty, but how are they responding? Are churches, there's a quote from the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just before he was killed by the Nazis in the closing days of the Second World War, he talked about the calling of the church in the face of in, in the face of evil. And he said, is the church called to bandage up the wounds of, of, of the of those who are hurting? Or is the church called to ram a spoke into the wheel of injustice? And I think that's the challenge facing the church in the UK. Most churches have committed themselves to various interpretations of the biblical understanding that in an unjust world, a loving God who creates all people equal necessarily has a preferential option to the poor, not because rich people are somehow wicked and all people are somehow saints, but because structural injustice contradicts the will of a God who creates people of equal worth. So the question is, what does the church do with that commitment? What what does it do with its influence? Is it welfare? Is it justice? Or is that a false binary? As for Thacker, he was sceptical of high-profile targets around the eradication of poverty, which mostly existed, he thought, to make Western countries feel like they were doing something, but did not actually make much difference on the ground. I'm kind of torn on the UN goals. I think they make Western countries feel better about themselves. You know, look at what we're doing. We've set these goals to eradicate poverty or improve literacy or improve healthcare and so on. Do they genuinely make a difference to um, the global economic architecture? Uh, I'm less persuaded. In other words... Um, it seems to me that the improvements that we've seen in health and literacy and economic development would probably have occurred whether or not we had those goals. So uh, I'm not. A, it's not that I'm opposed to the goals. I mean, I'm certainly not opposed to what they're trying to achieve. The, the intentions are good. Do they really make a difference to the lives of those who are struggling and those who are poor? I'm kind of, I'm not massively persuaded. I'm like, yeah. And in truth, those eye-catching falls in severe poverty in the 1990s and 2000s that excited anti-poverty activists and spurred the UN on to set even more ambitious targets, they were in large part actually caused by China's economic revival, lifting hundreds of millions of subsistence farmers into its prosperous middle classes. And China paid no heed whatsoever to the UN's targets in so doing. Yeah, it's a difficult one to answer for this reason, that the the multi-decade statistics on extreme poverty around the world are so greatly impacted by the increase in prosperity in China. Mm. And and so the the date when the poverty statistics really started being tracked much more closely and and measured um, coincided with the end of a very turbulent and difficult period in China's history with um, that was greatly forward and millions of people um, died of hunger and also uh, many millions more many millions more were living in you know absolute poverty so um yeah i think we've got to be careful about not not allowing poverty statistics to become a distraction from 
you know, helping to improve the plight of people in poverty. <laughs> you, one could be depressed or optimistic, depending on what the data says. I feel like we've got a job to do, and, and that's where our focus is. That's it for this week's Premier Christian Newscast. But if you've enjoyed what you heard, please do leave us a review on whatever podcast app you use. And why not also tell a friend about the show? Don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get each new episode sent automatically to your phone or tablet week by week. If you've got any questions, feedback, or want to suggest a topic we should explore, you can email me at tswyatt at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Premier Christian Newscast. 